Headlights burn straight through the dark. You look out the window, away from me. Cold's measured by degree. As we cross this barren land, wide as the sea, where hearts disappear. Guitar lessons when I was probably 13, 12 or 13. And, you know, that's what you learn to play freight train and, you know, green sleeves. And so, I mean, for me, at least the teachers I had were sort of teaching us to play folk songs. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got kind of to the point where I graduated from my first teacher, she said to me, You know, I don't think I can teach you anymore. I think you should go to my teacher. And that was Frank Hamilton. Okay. And he was teaching in a guitar store in Hollywood On this episode of Playtime, the music, music and memories of critically acclaimed singer-songwriter Carla Bonoff. I'm your host, W.C. Kirk. Just a little darkness, a storm that's passing through, a night full of rain. Well, if it don't kill us, it'll make us strong. on Playtime, an in-person review of the Lost album from the Smithereens with my guest, drummer Dennis Dyken. And don't miss my conversation with legendary metal guitarist Tristan Pelletieri and an interview with contemporary bluegrass artist Jared Rabin about his latest album, Chasing the Light. And over at Chicago Writers Association, my conversation on writing with purpose with author Alex Poppy is currently up. Coming up on the November episode of Chicago Writes, my conversation on censorship and the importance of the independent bookstore with Susie Takach, owner of the bookseller that's at chicagorights.org. On Tuesday, November 1st, Chicago has a very rare opportunity to see and hear Carla Bonoff's beautiful music at the City Winery, where she will be performing with special guest Nina Gerber. You know her music even if you don't immediately recall her name. Her work has been covered by Linda Ronstant, Ashley Judd, Bonnie Raitt, Aaron Neville, and her latest album, and this is a true story, Carla, uh, Carry Me Home brought tears to my wife's eyes. Uh, her website is carlabonoff.com, and for tickets to her November 1st show, visit citywinery.com. How are you? I'm great, thank you. It Just is ready, ready to get back on the road here. There you go. Um, it is. Uh, it's such an honor to speak with you. For time, I had to. I had to omit uh, a few things from your uh, from your intro and your bio, uh, like being on Bandstand, and that you were also on the uh, on the Footloose soundtrack uh, with the song "Somebody's Eyes." time. 
how did that come about? You know, um, my producer, a friend of mine, John Boylan, who produced Linda Ronstadt way back uh -huh. in the day, he was involved in that project. And um, as you may or may not know, Dean Pitchford wrote all the lyrics for all of those songs. And I forget, he had different people write music, Kenny Loggins, Tom Snow. Um, mm -hmm. So when it came time to record the songs, they were picking different artists and um, John Boylan suggested me for, for that one. So um, it was really simple. I just learned the song and I walked in and um, sang it. It took like 30 minutes. It was one of the easiest things I've ever did. And it made me more money probably than anything else ever has. <laughs> no kidding. Really? Wow. Wow. Well, um, sold a lot of albums all over it's the world. Certainly, I, I, I had, it, had it in my record collection many years ago. Um, I'd like to begin with a bit of your current work, uh, namely your song, Night Full of Rain which is a breathtakingly beautiful song. The lyrics to the song are particularly moving and, and uh, I won't do them justice as you will, uh, but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to give people a, a little bit of a sense. Just a little darkness, a storm passing through, a night full of rain. If it don't kill us, it'll make us strong. No matter who is right or who is wrong, we just have to know which way to go. This is a beautiful, uh, this, this song has beautiful melancholic realism about the storm in any relationship. Just a little darkness, a storm that's passing through, a night full of rain. Or if it don't kill us, it'll make us strong. No matter who's right or wrong, we just have to know. love to know how that song came together for you and, and what inspired it well i think unfortunately in this in this digital age we don't yeah. get to see song credits and stuff so i will tell you and certainly not your fault that that song was written by kenny edwards um my longtime friend and partner and uh -huh. um, passed away in 2010 and so um, you know, having extra time on our hands kind of during COVID when we weren't out touring and stuff, yeah. um, I was just looking for things to record. And I'd always loved that song of Kenny's. And in fact, we used to perform it together on stage. I would sing harmonies and he would sing the lead. So um, it just was a perfect choice. It's such a beautiful song. And um, I had a chance to go in the studio with my new producer, Sean McHugh, who is responsible for... Um, the arrangement and that beautiful video that he and his daughter took of me uh, driving in that truck <laughs> in one take. So that's how that came about. Well, uh, kudos to uh, to Kenny Edwards, the the, the late great Kenny Ed Edwards, um, because it is such a beautiful song. Um, and, but you render it magnificently. But uh, you, you spoke about the uh, the video of the song. Uh, there is an equally impressive story behind that as well. 
Sean, who's my producer and also just like one of those guys that can kind of do anything, said, I have this idea. We'll drive you in. A, you have to drive my truck, his old truck, and we'll figure out a way to make it rain because it doesn't rain here in Southern California anymore. And we'll figure out a way to do it. He said, but it has to be like one take because it has to be right when the when it's dusk. So my assignment was to get in this truck, which in the back had a big garbage can full of water and, and a rainbird sprinkler hooked up to it so that it would make rain on the on the dashboard. Yeah. Um, and the windshield, I'm sorry. And we had to start driving at a certain point and then drive to the end of this road where it said end. So I had to drive at the perfect speed, sing the song. Um, his daughter Nina was like on the floor of the cab of this truck shooting me. And so it was kind of interesting because I wasn't used to driving his truck. I wasn't used to lip syncing and driving a truck <laughs> and then making sure I drove at the perfect speed, not too fast or not too slow so that the song would end at the end of this road. So yeah. it was one take and, um, you know, kudos to them for their great creativity and, you know, figuring out how to make a video fast and cheap. <laughs> uh, but it's a beautiful video and, and it, it, it matches the uh, the intensity and the beauty of the of the song perfectly. You're kind of playing catch up with uh, with this tour. You, COVID came along just as you were ramping up for for a tour for Carry Me Home. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And um, pretty much all of our dates from let's see, 2020, well, March of 2020, kind of the curtain came down. I was mm. driving to somewhere in Southern California to play a show with Livingston Taylor. And I was about halfway there. And Gavin Newsom said, no gatherings over 50 people. So oh. that's, we basically, my agent called me and said, turn around and go home. And I thought, oh, okay, this will be over in a month or so. And we'll reschedule. It was that abrupt. Yeah. It was just like, go home. We can't do any. And I had three shows right then. And then of course, everything for the rest of that year and we just kept rescheduling and then we couldn't do them and rescheduling i mean as you know it just kind of kept going and going um pretty much i've made everything up by now that we had scheduled other than one that i have coming up this weekend uh, yeah. we've managed we only lost about one show all the rest of them really did get rescheduled nice nice very nice we kind of worked through this as best we could uh with with various artists i'm i'm a theater guy and an author was a war photographer, kind of kept the conversation going through the radio show about how how to get through this. But time and time again, we spoke with, you know, it, it hit the theater community really hard it, and it hit musicians extra hard. I, I just spoke about uh, Jared Rabin, a, a local Chicago guy who, who does folk and bluegrass. Um, he also has has a wedding band and, and that shut him down. Uh, oh, that was his his bread and butter at the time when when he was raising two kids. This this was this is kind of your your bread and butter. Have you played at the City Winery before? Yes, I think at least once in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, well, great. I, it, it's a great room. I, I've been there a few times, and people people are going to love you there. And and uh, it's a great intimate place. It is. It's really you know I mean City Wineries have popped up in a lot of cities, and I think they've uh -huh. been a lifesaver for. Artists who played to smaller audiences who kind of lost venues, you know, there a lot of cities don't have a venue that's got three or 400 seats anymore. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, that really shuts out a lot of artists that kind of are at that level who can't play a thousand seats or bigger or don't want to go just play a house concert somewhere. So mm -hmm. um, fortunately, you know, they've really helped us kind of tie our tours together through some mm -hmm. cities where we used to struggle to find the right venue. That that intimacy you get in those in those kind of medium sized or smaller rooms that you can't get in in a large hall. No, it's yeah, and it's very casual. And I think it's nice that people can kind of come and have dinner and relax. And, you know, this this is a crazy aside. You're you're playing with uh, with Nina Gerber. Um, and, and I was reading something in her bio where she's talking about walking through the vineyards. Does she live in a vineyard? She well, she yes, yeah, she did live in a vineyard in Northern California. She's recently moved back to her childhood home. That very nice. That, that's my dream, actually. Um, I, I I usually so I usually end with with this, but but I wanted to start here with you um, because it, it'll it'll kind of flow through and, and make some sense here in a bit. I wanted to ask you where creativity and inspiration come from i've asked this of hundreds of of artists and playwrights and authors and musicians in in my own life characters or or moments of inspiration when i'm painting or or all these things seem to come from someplace outside of us or someplace so deep inside of us that that we don't have conscious control over and and i would love I would love your your thoughts. Are you tapping Carla Bonoff? Are you are you tapping into a stream of universal consci consciousness, or does it come from someplace within you? How how does? No, I totally agree with you. I think that the best work I've done always seems to come from somewhere that I don't have any idea. It's mm -hmm. like wow, you know what? You know it's coming out of your subconscious or out of the air and combined with your subconscious or something you dreamt or saw and it all just kind of intermingles, you know, I mean, our brains are so interesting. You just have to wonder how the input that we go through all the time gets processed. But for me, when I've written and the best stuff I've written, it, it seems to me like it just kind of appears on the page. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's a mystery, really. I don't know. I mean, I think it's about, having those channels open because they're always yeah. there's always inspiration out there it's a question of kind of letting yourself channel it and um you know for me a lot of times it's been about turning off that other voice that's always criticizing everything and oh that's good enough for you know so and so I'll hate that or you know whatever that stuff is that you know you need to kind of um that paralyzes people I think once if you're lucky enough to be able to just shift out of that, then I think you can free yourself to just be creative. And and I've learned it's sort of do more of that, really, because, you know, you don't ever. When I lost one of my cats one time, I was so gr grieving so hard and I just couldn't figure out what to do about the grief. And I thought, well, I'm just going to sit down and, you know, I'm going to write a song that no one will ever hear. I'm just going to write like a crazy emotion. I'm just going to pour all my stuff into it just so that I could try to purge some of this terrible grief that I'm dealing with and no one will ever have to hear it. And so that, that disclaimer, I think really allowed me to just be completely free. And I wrote the song goodbye, my friend, mm -hmm. which is probably, I think one of the best songs I've ever written. And it just, it was proof to me that when you take all those barriers away, 
and you just let yourself, you know, be completely free creatively, great stuff happens, you know. different ways too i once had a writing coach give me an assignment which was just like oh my god no don't give me homework i don't want to do that you know and just took something out of a journal i was writing and just said all right i'm going to give you assignment he took a phrase and and said just write write a song called this and um, and i went home just like dreading it but you know i wrote another great song so you know, it could be an assignment. It can be out of your own personal grief, but it does seem to always come back to that same thread, which is somehow it comes out of your being. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's better and sometimes it's not as good, but, you know, and some of it I feel for me, I guess I'm just lucky enough to have been given, you know, a talent yeah. and um, that's something I had no control over. It's just born with that. So that I'm, you know, I'm eternally grateful for that because that's given me this beautiful life of music. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, how do you turn off or how did you learn to turn off or have you learned to turn off that negative voice or you just push through it? I don't think you ever learn to completely turn it off, yeah. but I think you learn techniques to sort of at least, you know, periodically free yourself from it. Like I explained where you just go, okay, I'm just doing this for me. No one else is going to read this or hear this. And, um, or just telling yourself, no one ever has to hear it if it sucks, you know, but mm-hmm. you, you know, everybody, it's better to write a bad song than to write no song, I think, because you never know when you sit down and something great's going to happen. Or it may lead what whatever you're sitting down and thinking at the moment may lead you to something else, some some other right. epiphany, some other inspiration. Yeah, and I think some of it is a discipline too. I mean, you, someone once said to me, "You have to show up for your job." You know, if yeah. you don't sit down at the piano or the guitar, you know, nothing's going to happen. So you really do have to show up. You know, you might write nothing. You might write two words or one line, mm-hmm. or but if you don't show up there the good stuff won't happen either. So that's part of what I've learned is you really do have to designate some kind of time every day, even if it's just 15 minutes Mm -hmm. to, you know, have your time where you're playing or writing or whatever you're doing. Is that how you deal with, with writer's block is just sitting down and, and being in the, in the space or being in that moment? Yeah, I think you have to, because if you let writer's block start to scare you and you just kind of run away from it, I can always write music. And so I can always Mm -hmm. play music and lyrics are harder. So oftentimes I'll, you know, I'll have have a nice piece of music and I just take 
weeks to get any lyrics. So it's tricky, but I think it's, you know, it's part of what's fun about it too, is it's never the same, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to the uh to the lyrics comment here in a little bit. I take a little bit issue with you and uh and and, and the lyrics, which uh seem to seem to match so beautifully your music. But I wanted to ask you this. You were playing at the Troubadour Club in West Hollywood in the 60s with names like Linda Ronstam, as we mentioned, Bonnie Raitt, who you went to high school with, right? Yes. Did you know her in high school? Um, Kind of. My sister knew her brother, um, Steve. And so, I mean, I was aware of her. She was a little ahead of me. Okay. She wasn't really in my class, but I knew of her family. And she also mm-hmm. didn't stay at my high school the whole time she went off to uh, school back east, I think. So, okay. yeah. Uh, but also, uh, also at, at the Troubadour Club, you you played with uh, or or uh, resided with uh, Jackson Brown and the Eagles. Uh, in American Songwriter, you framed the musical environment there at that time this way. And I quote. Uh, it was really open for everybody to explore. It wasn't the scene that it is now. It was like a big open field. Nobody knew exactly what was going to happen with it. It was exciting to be part of the Troubadour. Do you think? Do you think that the music field is as wide open now as it was back then, including aspects of exper- experimentalism and and just challenging yourself and challenging new sounds and and what has changed in that ensuing time in music well i mean it's so hard to even compare because at that time i mean it was all about live performance because no one could really make a demo or make a record or record anything there was no way to do that yeah um, and you know, in those days, so the goal was to be a good, li- good enough live performer that some record company guy would hear you and sign you, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the only way to sort of move forward, really, um, because you had to get someone to back you and pay for you to record, or at mm-hmm. least pay for you to make a demo. So, in the sense that it was wide open, I think it was wide open because the music business wasn't such a business, and mm-hmm. artists and music were sort of being cultivated and allowed to grow and mm-hmm. make one or two or three records on a label. But now I guess the difference is, I mean, you can make a record at home, you know, you can record a song and put it on SoundCloud tonight. Yeah. And it's out there. So, I mean, all of that logistics stuff is taken away, but it also probably makes it so much harder because everyone can do that. So how are you going to get attention to your own music? You know, so to me, that seems like that would be daunting. I don't know if, I mean, if people get big major record deals anymore, I'm so out of that. I don't know who would get those. Um, yeah, we speak with artists all the time who who are putting out really terrific albums, music. And, and several of these artists would have been signed by a major label because their work is so strong and so good and so professional. But you're, you're a drop in an ocean at this point. Smiles flow like wine and the tears have nowhere to go Tell you my friend that it's a place you can go For a while to replenish your soul For a while to replenish your soul Let these may break your faith 
show that the pain that you feel has nowhere to go. Tell you my friend of this place you can go for a while to replenish your soul. For a while. Yeah, and I think that's the problem. I mean, I mean, every now and then you get someone like Billie Eilish that just it goes viral and it takes off and mm -hmm. But I'm sure there are other people that is equally as talented who that hasn't happened to. Um, mm -hmm. You know, somebody's when, getting signed. Someone's getting signed. I mean, when we were signed, when I got signed by Columbia Records, I mean, part of what you knew was going to come with that was huge amounts of promotion, and mm -hmm. there was a whole A and R staff, and there was a publicity staff, and there was a guy in every city who would meet you. I yeah. mean, when I would do these radio promotion tours. They'd fly you to every city and there'd be the local, you know, Chicago guy who would <laughs> go up and take you to all the radio stations. And then we'd go to Tower Records and do these big in stores. And, um, you know, there was a huge corporation there that's backing you. And when you yeah. think about how much that works to promote at radio and everything, I mean, that machinery behind you is something that's like, you know, how do you compare to that? An artist today without a record, you can't do that. There's pros and cons to uh, to levels of freedom. You have now you have complete freedom over what you produce, but what you produce might might never be heard or might not get the get the same attention that you would with with being signed to a to a record label back back in the day. But what what was the level of of creative freedom that that you enjoyed? when you were first signed with Columbia? You know, actually pretty, pretty great. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that they let me make my first record um, with an untested producer, Kenny Edwards. They gave me the freedom to go ahead and do that, which was pretty, pretty amazing. There was some pressure after that. I think it, it, the way radio was at that time, you needed kind of an up-tempo song for a hit single. Mm -hmm. And so there always was this pressure to, you know, do you have something that's going to be able to be played on the radio? We love all your ballads and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. um, And so all of us, I think, always felt this uncomfortable thing of, oh, I got to have the hit. Yeah. What's that going to be? You know, try to write the hit or you know, or try to cover something that's going to be a hit. So I would say there was pressure for that. And I understand that. I mean, that was how they sell records. If you're not on the radio, it's hard to sell records. I don't think that's changed all that much, except yeah. maybe maybe the radio is replaced by YouTube and the number of clicks and likes and, you know. I also think that the genre opened up a bit where you could have a ballad to be a big hit. I mean, I remember when... Yeah. Um, Sarah McLaughlin had that song Angel out and I would listen to that and go, boy, when I had a record out, you know, there's no way they would have played something like that. That would just yeah. would have been either that or it's like we're already playing one female artist. We can't play anymore. There was a lot of that. Okay. So it was very narrow little sort of field that you had to get into um, to get played on the radio. So there was that pressure um, and also the pressure, the timing. It's like we want a record every year. Yeah. You know, we just got all this going and we need more and more and more and more. And that was always so hard because you make a record, then you're on the road for like six or eight months mm -hmm. and you don't have any time to kind of regenerate it all. And then they want you back in the studio. And I, I didn't write really that prolifically. So that was a struggle for me because they go, we need another record. And I go, well, I don't have any songs yet. So mm -hmm. 
there was this pressure to stay on that schedule. Once I lived the life of a millionaire Spending all my money and I didn't care Taking my friends out for a very good time I was drinking hard liquor Smoking gauge, drinking wine Then I began to fall so low Didn't have a friend and no place to go If I ever get my hands on a dollar Again I'm gonna he took guitar lessons with uh, Frank Hamilton, who replaced yeah. Eric Darling, I think, uh, who succeeded Pete Seeger in the folk group uh, The Weavers. Um, and and for, for folks here in Chicago, Frank Hamilton started the Old Town School of Folk Music in Lincoln Park, where I used to hang out many, many years ago. Folk was huge in the, in the 50s and 60s in particular. What was the appeal for that genre to a young Carla Banoff? Well, I think it just came out of learning to play the guitar. You know, when yeah. I took guitar lessons when I was probably 13, 12 or 13, and, you know, that's what you learn to play, Freight Train and, you know, Green Sleeves. And so, I mean, for me, at least the teachers I had were sort of teaching us to play folk songs. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got kind of to the point where I graduated from my first teacher, she said to me, you know, I don't think I can teach you anymore I think you should go to my teacher and that was Frank Hamilton okay and he was teaching in a guitar store in Hollywood called Barney Kessel's Music World um so I was so lucky that I took from this woman Irene Naftalin and then she passed me on to Frank who then really helped me write songs and arrange songs and um but you know Frank as you know is just such an incredible resource of folk music and oh god yeah so then he started to teach me a lot more of those um, songs. And that's where I learned The Water is Wide from him. Was was there one thing that Frank imparted to you that you carry through your music today? I think that song, that's a huge yeah. gift. That was a huge gift for me. And it's something that um, my fans just love and yeah, I mean, that sort of epitomizes everything that, you know, the gift of that Frank gave to me. And that arrangement really is the arrangement from the Weavers, that one that I'm playing. There's a dedicated and and really stalwart folk base in this country. We've we've talked with a couple of, of folk artists here in, in the city and and man, the 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 audience, the crowd for them is is completely loyal, even obsessive about about folk. Do you see a resurgence? Are these people who are younger or older? Is it like it, a new folk thing? It's uh mostly generation X and uh, and and younger baby boomers. Um I think that's just, you know, it's one of those everything comes around things, I think. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's it was really unpopular for a long time. And it just comes back, I think, because I think everything that has real value, you know, I mean, that's why there's classic rock stations, you know, I mean, good music is always going to be good music. And 
Sometimes it's less in favor and other times it's more, but I think that's probably what that's about. And there's so much cool history with folk music that I think makes it really interesting for people. Because yeah. there was so much of a, you know, it's so much involved in a political movement at the same time. Uh-huh. Back, back to Frank Hamilton and, and the Weavers, uh, they, they were under scrutiny from from the FBI for for a good long while. Did they ever speak about that? Did he ever speak about that? You know, Frank was just so kind of um, humble and stuff. He never yeah. really spoke to me about any of that. And we were having lessons, so there wasn't a lot of talking. We were always kind of working, really. Yeah, nothing, nothing about don't don't pay attention to the guys in the in the black sedan across the street. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and this, yeah, I think that was probably '67 or '68. I think he was kind of past that stuff. Yeah. But- yeah, he's there is a documentary being made about Frank that I did an interview for, so it should be pretty interesting. Oh God, I'm, I can't wait to see that. Let's flip here to to Brindle. You and friends, Wendy Waldman, Kenny Edwards, Andrew Gold formed uh, formed a band Brindle in the in the Troubadour. Is that right? Um, kind of around that time, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I met Kenny, and then he knew Andrew and Wendy. Andrew and Wendy went to high school together, and mm-hmm. they were kind of all around that that time. I mean, this Linda had been in the Stone Ponies. The Stone Ponies had broken up. Linda was playing solo. Kenny was kind of free, and Andrew and Wendy and I were quite young. But um, we just decided to put a band together and write songs and sing four-part harmonies. And um, that's what we did. That's how we started out. And we got signed to A&M Records in 1970. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then uh, then you you broke up without, without releasing the album. Yeah, we turned the album in. And I think that um, at A&M, they didn't quite, I don't know, they didn't quite know what to make of it. I think it maybe wasn't fully realized. Mm-hmm. And... Instead of giving us a chance to make another record, they just kind of let us go. So at that point, um, we ended up working in a bar for a while, top 40 bar. And, you know, and then Wendy really was the most developed as a songwriter at that point. Uh And she had an opportunity to go make her first solo album for Warner Brothers. So that kind of split us up. And uh, that was kind of the end of the band. And the guys went off and joined the Linda Ronstadt touring band. I've heard Woke Up This Morning off off that album. was they tried to before they dropped us and they didn't know what to make of the album they thought what if we had Lou Adler produce a single on them Uh because he produced the moms and papas maybe he could do something with this band so 
That was their last attempt to kind of save us, and they did release that that one song. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think the back of it was a song of Kenny's, the B-side, called Go Home and Start Again. You might be able to find that somewhere. What did you see? It wasn't me. When you made up your mind, now it's turned out to be no good for nobody. Let's go home and start again. No one likes to see that they're losing. They tune in like to live in fear. Someday it finally comes down to choosing, and I feel that today is So Brindle basically takes a 30-year pause. At the time, that, that first breakup, so close to recording recording an album, had to, had to have been a little devastating. Oh, totally. I mean, because we thought we were on our way. Yeah. And we really, I think we really were good. We were really good. We just needed a little more time to become better writers. I think some of the songs were a little mm -hmm. bit unformed, but I think that we would have gotten there with another, you know, another year. I mean, it's just like before Fleetwood Mac and stuff. I mean, I think they just didn't really see what we were doing. I think we were ahead of our time, actually. Yeah. Uh, with all that talent, though, that, that you, you, you had to have, uh, had to have done something amazing. I think that AM was right, the wrong place for us to. Yeah. Um, it was just the wrong label. They had the Carpenters and it was just a different world. I think mm -hmm. we would have been better on a label that was more hippie oriented. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it was hard for me because Wendy went ahead and made a solo record and the guys went off and played with Linda and I yeah. just by myself going, okay, now what? And I just started working on my writing and going back and playing those Monday nights at the Troubadour, which ultimately launched my solo career. But I, it took me a little more time. You were kind of undaunted um, in, in in chasing that musical dream. Ruth Ann Friedman, who is is a is a friend, she's, who famously wrote uh, "Windy" for the Association. She went off and raised two daughters and ran and ran a paper supply business before coming back and and releasing an album. Uh, a couple of years ago. What was there a moment when you second guessed becoming or remaining a musician? Um, I mean, I had moments where I worried, you know, wow, I didn't go to college. So yeah. still only like 23 or 24, I, I still could turn this around. But at that point, I mean, I just had no interest in school. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was like, I think I went and actually took like a, um, a an extension class in veterinary care because I loved animals. I thought, well, maybe I could do that. But I mean, that would require going back to school and being yeah. pre-med, becoming a vet. And I was just like, you know, I was pretty deep into music at that point and I just didn't feel like switching gears. But yeah, I worried about it. because It was like, well, now's the time to kind of make a decision. Um, my parents were worried about it too. And so, you know, it was it was difficult. But I think after being... Once you've been in a band and you've had a record deal and you've had that thrill of that recording, taste, yeah. you know, it's pretty hard to walk away from that. 
And so I felt, I think I felt confident enough in my talent. And I did, um, before I got signed, I sent a demo of that song home over to Bonnie Raitt. Mm -hmm. And she decided to record it. And I think that was a turning point for me. Traveling at night, the headlights were bright. And we'd been up many an hour. All through my brain came the refrain of home and its warming. And home sings me of sweet things My life there has its own wings Fly over the mountain Though I'm standing still Once someone like that decides to record your song, it's yeah. kind of a, it gives you kind of a kick in the butt where you go, okay, I think I I think I'm okay. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So that was a turning point, and then shortly after that, Linda recorded my some of my songs too. So and so your former bandmates Andrew Gold and Kenny Edwards were were your greatest champions in bringing your music to the attention of Linda Ronson or, or had she heard you and this was just a, just an extra nudge in your favor? Um, I mean, I think she was aware of Brindle and aware of us. Um, yeah. You know, at the time, Kenny was my boyfriend. So okay. when he would be doing a show with Linda, I could go and I'd be backstage. And I remember at one point even sitting down at a piano and playing her someone to lay down beside me. And she kind of went, Oh, yeah. And it was like, hmm, that didn't work. Um, and that was like a, a year probably before she came around to recording it. So it probably was my performance of it. Maybe I wasn't strong enough then. But so I was around her and certainly had opportunity. I mean, right place at the right time to ultimately it was Kenny that got her the first song that she recorded because he just played it for her on the guitar and sang it to her. And whatever he did, she it made sense <laughs> to her. Learned it at a sound check and on the road and it, it got in the set. Uh, it was a song called Lose Again. Yes, he was responsible, I think, for really bridging that gap between my music and and making it a reality for her because they'd been playing that music with me. So mm -hmm. they could just get on stage and go, here's here's the arrangement. And, you know, it was easy for her to to learn those tunes. And also she was looking for songs a lot. So 
but she recorded on on that hasten down the wind album she recorded three of your songs uh which by my count um and i'm not a math major but that was two more than any other songwriter yes and you know for me to go from three from nothing to three basically um yeah she recorded someone to lay down beside me first Uh uh-huh and she asked if i had anything else and then i think um it was lose again was next and then if he's ever near was next so yeah yeah, that was like crazy from zero to 60. (laughs) yeah it was um and and it, it really puts you on the map then again in 1989 she returns to that that deep creative Carla Poole uh, of songwriting and comes away with a, with a triple platinum album again with three of your songs. This is for uh, "Cry Like a Rainstorm," "Howl Like the Rain," including "All My Life" with Aaron Neville. Did you yeah. did did you write that song as as a duet as a musical conversation? No, I wrote that song actually for um, a movie, and it wasn't used. And so I had it. I put it on my um, New World album. Okay. Um, and then I'm not sure of the timing. The New World album came out in 1988. Before before, um, cry like a rainstorm, howl like a rain. Right. And so I think um, Linda called me up and told me she was doing an album with Aaron. And did I have anything that they could record? And I said, you know, I think this this song could really work. So um, I sent that song to them. And within days, they were in the studio recording it. Mm -hmm. You've said in the past that you write the mirror, the, the music before before the lyrics. How is it that you write lyrics so beautifully to match match your music it it, it seems like it, it seems like they that there's this this sort of epiphany of in, inspiration uh that feeds both of those you know i don't know the answer to that except for that it's music that kind of moves me to write lyrics so okay. if i have a really good piece of music that I love. I think it just brings those lyrics out. Um, And sometimes they don't come at all, but when they do, um, that particular song was funny because it was actually, I I got to see this screening of this movie and you know Mm -hmm. how sometimes they put temporary tracks in Mm -hmm. to suggest the music they want, but sometimes it's music they can't afford. Like, in, so in this particular case, they were using Phil Collins' One More mm. Night. And obviously, you know, he was going to ask a million dollars for that. So they said, this is what we would like it to feel like. So I was kind of trying to copy that when I wrote All My Life. It was just, that was another one of those assignment issues, really. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and another time that kind of proved to me you could have an assignment like that and write a good song, you know, which made me realize, you know, even when I'm not coming from what I think is my heart or whatever, I guess I'm good enough to still write something that's meaningful. So that that, that was another good lesson for me. But that's how that song came about, kind of funny. And I don't think that, I'm glad they didn't use it in the movie because they would have uh, owned it. <laughs> <laughs> so so then in 1983, Ashley Judd scores a hit with your song, Tell Me Why, which is virtually the same arrangement uh, as your 1988 album, New World. Carry Me Home album, you give us a third, mellower version, quieter version. Which is closer to the original vision that you had when you when you first wrote the song or thought, this is how I want this, so- this song to sound? God, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, when I first wrote it, I think I was probably just trying to write something up-tempo because, of course, mm-hmm. I always have too many ballads. Um and I made that album, that New World album, with a fellow producer named Mark Goldenberg. Mm-hmm. And at that time, um, for people who know equipment, Pro Tools was just beginning a digital performer. And mm-hmm. so that was a time where a lot of things were just drum machines. And so that thing was kind of arranged kind of, you know, synthetically, really. I mean, mm-hmm. we didn't have a real drummer or anything like that. So that... That's one of my albums that I regret a little bit is affected sort of by the early technology that we now have much better resources for. But so I don't know if that really represented. I think the way I play it and sing it on stage is and the way it is on the Carry Me Home album is probably more true to its basic origins. But you're right. Winona did copy um, pretty much. She did do the same version that we did on the New World album. Mm hmm. I'm kind of jumping around here, but there's a lot of ground to cover with you. And and so we we spoke about Andrew Gold and and Kenny Edwards. What did the music world lose with the passing of of Kenny and Andrew? Oh my God. Uh yeah. that's such a huge question. Yeah. Um you know, both of those guys are so incredibly talented and in different ways. And I mean, I'll start with Andrew. I mean, Andrew was one of those people that could play, sing, play any instrument, produce, record. He was an incredible recording engineer, incredible producer. He could play drums, guitar, Um, you know, for people who are familiar with some of his albums and just like astounding sort of pieces of music. Um, And I think that Andrew, you know, Andrew was very productive and always making music and, you know, to lose him at 59 or... Mm -hmm. He would have made music for another 25 years, easily. 
Um, so that makes me really sad. And then Kenny really was starting to come into his own as a solo artist, really late in life. And um, the last album that he made called Resurrection Road, which is such a beautiful album. Sadly, you know, he passed away not too long after that, but at least he did make us those two beautiful solo albums. But as great of a sideman as he was and a producer and a background singer, I think he was always a little frustrated because he wanted to to find his own voice. And so I think, you know, those last that last record in particular is just so beautiful. And I think he would have continued to make some great albums. And uh, so, yeah, he's sorely missed and played on the road with me for years and wow. um, just such a great, you know, musician and background singer and, you know, pretty, he spoiled me, really. <laughs> that's that's a, a really difficult question. And, and I thank you for, for being so gracious about it. But they, they were also such a big part of your personal and professional life. I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't let this go by. And not mention them. Not not the least of which, probably a lot of people will will recognize Andrew Gold, who sang. Um, well, he 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 did uh, he did the Golden Girls theme, uh, right. Mad About You theme. Uh, but he did a song called Lonely Boy back in the uh, back in the seventies, which when it came out, I hated because it resonated so strongly with me. I was a I was a I was a fat little kid and. I had two two younger brothers and there was a sibling rivalry so so that song just it it just it hit home really really deeply and it wasn't until it wasn't until I, I went off to off to college and uh, and moved out out of, out of home that I really just loved that song for for what it was
you're touring with special guest Nina Gerber on this tour. Did I also see that uh, that she collaborated with uh, Kenny Edwards? Um, I'm sure she did play on some of his stuff. I'm okay. not sure about that. Yeah, probably so. I mean, she, you know, Nina joined. I was playing with Kenny and then Nina joined us and played okay. with us for many years. So the three of us would go out and tour. And then, of course, when we lost Kenny, I've just been playing with Nina. But mm, yeah. uh, Nina is an incredible guitar player and an artist in her own right. Um, for people who are folk music fans, she started out playing with Kate Wolf when, mm -hmm. yep. when she was probably 16 and traveling the country with Kate. And so her background really comes from that very pure folk music. But she plays electric guitar with me mostly, and she's just a phenomenal electric guitar player, too. Are you, uh, so are you on stage now? Are you playing piano and guitar or? Yes. Okay. I'll give, I'll give this, uh, this website out for, for Nina, ninagerber.com. And I, we'll, we'll post that in the, in the notes as well. You have an amazing and historic body of work, uh, including, by the way, a beautiful and peaceful Christmas album that we're really just skimming the surface on. What can folks expect to hear on this tour? Well, in November, um, Nina and I are touring Midwest and the East Coast. And so we'll uh -huh. be playing stuff from my first album, second album, third album, fourth album, new stuff, maybe throw in a holiday tune or two if people aren't. Okay. Uh, people are ready to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I will be doing a holiday tour starting in December with Livingston Taylor. Uh -huh. So you can look for dates there um, on my website. Then we have a bunch of sh about 12 shows. Uh -huh. And I'm doing a lot of music from the holiday album then. Yeah. Silent Silent Night is the name of the album for Yes. Uh and it, it's it's a really wonderful album. Uh it features the uh it features River by Joni Mitchell. Um there's a gorgeous bit of melancholy and calmness uh pervading the album. What drove uh the choices in in choosing yeah. the the songs for that album? You know, we did did that um, when COVID, when COVID was happening. It just was like, I have all this time. All my dates are canceled. Yeah. So all this time to go in the studio. And really, um, I was just going to cut one or two songs because we thought, well, let's just do one or two and put them out. And then um, we had started having so much fun recording. <laughs> we kind of went, well, let's keep going. And so it turned into a CD accidentally, really. Um, so then there's the search for like, well, wow, you know, what, what songs are there? You know, I mean, I really hadn't planned it. I just started going online and kind of looking around and certainly River would be um, a first choice. You know, I think that's one of my favorite Joni songs and one of my favorite. It's coming on Christmas, they're cutting down trees, they're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. I wish I had a river. I could skate away on But it don't snow here It stays pretty green I'm gonna make a lot of money Then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene I wish I had a river I could skate away on Oh, I wish I had a river so long Teach my feet to fly. And then the other one. 
just kind of looking for stuff and looking for stuff that would be fun to sing. And we've actually been adding to it. I um, Every year we added a couple more. Last year I did a duet with Michael McDonald. Um, yeah, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Yeah, so that one. And then I think this year maybe we'll do another one. So it'll keep growing. Uh-huh. Had, you, had you met Michael before? I have met Michael, yes, many years ago, and um, we kind of live in the same town here. So he was, you know, during COVID, it was only, you know, we had to call on people who were sort of around and (laughs) keeping in their own bubbles and who would come with a mask and take it off and sing. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of resources, but he was terrific. Great. I've never sung with him before, though. I hope that we can do more. Oh, come You guys sound really great together, and and, and so I saw this um, on the in the notes uh, below the uh, below the song, and I wanted to uh, uh, I, I wanted to see if I can make you smile uh, with the song, but uh, with with this, but other people I think will will get a benefit from this. Thank you. This was from a, a fan named Doug who wrote this last November. Uh, thank you so much, Carla and Michael. In these times of uncertainty, you bring a calming peace that can only come from one who watches overall. This brings peace a little bit closer to my maker. I can't wait to get your new Christmas CD. I ordered it yesterday. Over uh, over 40 years, you've calmed my sometimes desperate trials in my life with your music and your voice uh, of an angel. Bless you both. I-, I couldn't think of a way to say or a way to illustrate the power of music to heal and calm any better. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's so cool. I mean, that makes it all worth it, you know, when it gets hard or you kind of go, why am I doing this? Who's going to listen to it anyway? Or, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, it makes it really, that's wonderful. The, you know, if I can help heal anyone out there in this weird world we're in, that's that's fantastic. Carla Bonoff is an American classic who has enriched our musical landscape. Here in Chicago, she performs one night only at the City Winery, citywinery.com. Her website is carlabonoff.com. I will post links in the notes below. Magnificent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good luck with the tour. If you'll bear with me for just a moment uh, as I put a neat little bow on all this, my very sincere thank you to Carla Bonoff uh, and to all of you listening. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe by simply clicking the link below. And don't forget to share Playtime with your friends. For Playtime, I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Thank you so much, Carla. This thank was you. wonderful. What a pleasure. It, it was. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. You too. Thank you so much. When does this run? Uh, it'll be uh, so I'll, I'll edit it music. That'll probably take a day or two. Okay, cool. The sun went down 
Just sweeps me 
inside these walls I stayed away from it all Forever I held it all inside And now the fire's running wild I surrender Just sweeps me 